0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanamy. My name is Uzair Yunus and we are continuing our special series on the US-China competition or rivalry or strategic competition, whichever way you want to call it. We've had Andrew Small talk to us about East Asia, give us a big picture view of how uh, some of the smaller powers in the region are looking at things. Last week, we had Samir Lalwani talk about his research on the China military military uh, China Pakistan military alliance, um, and how that's shaping up, and how the Chinese are sort of reaching this this threshold alliance level that he so aptly described. And today we're going to look at Australia and what's going on over there uh, with Professor Jane Golly, who is an economist at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. She's also an ANU graduate, and has had a lifelong interest in China, primarily looking at its economy. Um, and the reason, uh one of the reasons among many that I have Professor Gali here with me is because she's uh she's she's an outlier in sort of this emerging Western consensus or groupthink or the blob doing its thing about what to do with the with a China, and has been outspoken publicly about, you know, that we need to think about things a bit differently. Um so as lifelong uh, expert on China. We're looking forward to, I am looking forward to hearing our thoughts and for the audience who's looked at this podcast, like we try to have a diverse set of views. So I hope you find this conversation valuable. Uh, Professor Ghali, first of all, welcome to Pakistanomy
1: and thank you so
0: much for taking out the time today.
1: Thanks for having me, Uzair. It's really nice to be here, and please call me Jane. (laughs) So, Jane, I I want
0: to begin this conversation uh, with you. You know, typically on this podcast, we talk about South Asia. Um, In South Asia, particularly in Pakistan, uh, audiences are familiar with U.S. foreign policy or the Europeans are up to. But in our discourse, the Australians and the Japanese don't really feature that much, even though they're such big, important powers in, in, in sort of the eastern part of the world. So help us understand what the ongoing debate with regards to China and Australia is. And how do you see um, that, that debate shape up in Australia? And what are the major perspectives on, on how to deal with the rising China in Australia?
1: Look, it's a big question because so much has happened in the last two decades, but especially I would say in the last five years. And I've become really interested in the narratives that surround the Australia-China debates. And I guess I'd start by saying, you know, there are two extreme versions of of the narrative. The one I'd call, you know, simplistically the security hawks or the the geo-economic narrative, and I'll come back and talk more about geo-economics down the track. Uh, But according to that narrative, you know, Sino-American great power rivalry is the key issue that we're all facing. And in it, China is the villain, essentially. And Australia needs to align with like-minded allies, you know, to diversify uh, towards them, towards our friends, to mitigate against the coercive practices that the Chinese have used. We should limit Chinese investment, you know, simply I'd call it an anti-Chinese narrative. And then at the other end of the extreme, which has been dominated by economists, and I'll leave you and your listeners to judge whether I fall into this category. Uh, I don't think I'm quite there, but they're the engagement doves, Uh, another nice term for them, the panda huggers, although, you know, who would want to hug a panda? Um, But they basically... Have celebrated uh, the engagement that Australia's had with China, the benefits that it's brought to the Australian economy. They see globalisation essentially as an unstoppable force, a beneficial one. And, you know, as long as we tighten the rules based order and continue to encourage China to play along, then everything will work out fine. Uh, So I actually don't sit on that extreme and I've shifted. Along over time with developments that have happened, and we can talk more about those. And, of course, not that many people fall on either of those extremes. Either there's a spectrum and there's lots of debates going on. I think there's a really important question about sort of the appropriate middle ground here, and we can perhaps come back to that. But I thought it would be useful to lay out, I guess, some of the big debates that have surrounded Um, the challenges. The challenge is pretty clear at the moment. Basically, our bilateral political relationship is pretty much at an historic low, bottoming out actually in 2022. There's been a slight uptick. Uh, We've had good news today. There's um, some of our trade disruptions with Beijing have just been called to an end with some pretty skillful diplomacy on both sides. But more broadly, the relationship's just gone downhill in the last five years. Uh, And it's led to a range of debates. I outlined them in a diplomacy article that I wrote back in 2020. I think they're still pretty central uh, to the kind of issues that surround quite contentious and sometimes pretty ugly debates here. You know, the first one is, is is Australia too dependent on China? Uh, because of our strong trading relationship with them. Of course, they're our number one trade partner in terms of exports and imports. Um, But also who's to blame for the deterioration in the relationship? You know, is China the only one practising economic coercion and kind of breaking the rules, or are there others in the mix? Uh, There are big questions about whether our trade can remain resilient to the deterioration in political ties, whether sort of politics and trade can be separated uh, and also a long-standing question about whether Australia had to choose between the US and China. And I guess now, with the choice, I think clearly made, and we can talk more about that as well, you know, have we made the right choice? So that's just a starting point. But again, I don't know if you want me to go on and talk. a little no, bit No, I,
0: I, that, that's a good overview. And I, I want to, you know, related to that, as you said, you've personally shifted on that spectrum. But before I get to that, Um, On the political side in Australia, how do you see the current government and the opposition? Where do you see them lying on this spectrum? So just the audience has a sense of, you know, in this democratic republic, what's the mainstream view on the governing side uh, of of sort of, you know, the debate? And where does Mm -hmm. the opposition stand currently with regards to China?
1: So just to be clear, currently the Australian Labour Party is in power, and that's after a long close to a decade of having the coalition or what I'll call the Liberal Party in power before that, Uh, my take on it is that on both sides of politics, there is a very, very staunch and strong commitment to the Australian, the American alliance, and that is unquestioned on both sides of the current leadership on both sides of government. Um, Anthony Albanese, our Prime Minister, just a couple of uh, days ago described the warmth, depth and strength of the US alliance and it's something that they stand up and say, and he did say the day that he becomes Prime Minister. So I think that's something that for a long time hasn't been questioned uh, or isn't isn't openly questioned by anyone that's right at the top of politics. That doesn't mean there aren't particularly on the Labour side, ex-Prime Ministers like Paul Keating, who questions the alliance. We see, again, news articles quite regularly that challenge it, but we tend to be considered the outliers if, if we do that. Um, I mean, that said, on both sides, you know, there's been a big shift in Australia over time. I mean, when Albanese won the election on, on the on the day after his election victory on May 21st last year, he basically stood up and said, China's changed, we haven't. And that was one of his starting points that, that was exactly the narrative that the Morrison government before him had used. And so they made a decision, I think, to align very much on taking that strong um, China challenge stance in all kind of to similar to, to
0: Biden and Trump, right? We saw that continuity in in DC over or that. So, so would you agree that's similar to that?
1: Absolutely. The narrative here is that there's bipartisan support for the alliance and that there's bipartisan agreement, really about the China challenge. But there's also been bipartisan kind of commitment over a very long period uh, all, and a shift detectable in that, but about China as our you know, fabulous trading partner and also our very good friends. I mean, you can go back to 2009, Kevin Rudd, who was we- very well known in China for being the first Mandarin speaking leader from anywhere in the world. And he turned up to China and used a fancy old Chinese word, Zhang yu, to talk about how Australia was a true friend, but one who dares to disagree. You know, Tony Abbott, a Liberal Prime Minister, who basically started in opposition by saying we shouldn't be having Chinese state-owned investment in the country, you know, that's not consistent with our our values. But he also then, when becoming Prime Minister, uh, recognised how important that investment was, said that we were open for Chinese business and described China as a true friend you know, get forward to Malcolm Turnbull, and I'm laying a bit of the groundwork here, but this is the next Prime Minister on the Liberal side. He made it clear that Australia didn't have to choose between our staunch ally and our good friend. Uh, But he also started to create waves, I think, with the Chinese. He was the one who in Parliament talked about, and using pretty bad Chinese, that we needed to stand up to China. You know, and so fast forward to Morrison, he's now calling the US our friend, China's our customer. So getting a bit more honest, I think about it. Um, And then Albanese, of course, uh, I think is probably and there's been some skillful diplomacy, there's some really positive moves just in the last couple of months, even in the last couple of weeks. Uh, but you know he's still pretty clear that we need to defend our sovereignty and values that that china is a challenge that needs to be dealt with so that security narrative essentially has become really really dominant in the in the discussions taking place here
0: well that's fascinating and again consistent with something i'm seeing here in washington we're seeing this you know in the debate in the uk in in india as well the indian prime minister is supposed to come to washington in a few weeks time and china is going to be front and center given the clashes they've had in the mountains uh in the himalayas as well um tell us a bit about you know you mentioned this where you and your journey on that spectrum and you're an economist and i was reading some of your own conversations about chinese development and how far china has come along um how has your own uh, view of this relationship, Australia and the Ch- and China, uh, evolved over time? And more importantly, how do you personally, as an expert on China, assess not only where Australian policy stands today, but again, the broader sort of emerging consensus, if you were to call it that, in sort of the Western strategy to deal with the rising China? W- what are some things that you've thought about or disagreed with or agree with and and think that people should you know think a bit differently about
1: yeah look that's a that's another big question um where should i start look i guess one of the points that i've come to understand and that i've argued over the last couple of years is that the world really has changed and i describe it as a shift from a neoliberal world order to a geoeconomic world order and th- and that's a world in which a range of countries, but most prominently the US and China, and we can come back to them, you know, use these economic tools to prosecute their broader geopolitical interests. And of course, Australia has become very much wrapped up in that. Uh, At the same time, China has changed. And, you know, Xi Jinping's China is not the China that I knew and studied, you know, for so many years before that. And a lot of that's been really challenging to watch, you know, the clamping down on academic freedoms and uh, on, on freedoms more broadly, the return of the state, uh, which is not necessarily and always a bad thing. But for most economists, it sort of strikes a bit of a, you know, a, a, a jars a little bit and you think they're going the wrong way. Um, but I guess I was never really that kind of economist to start with. You know, I, I see a, a role for the state and I think about the capacity that China has and that the Chinese government has to not only advance development in its own country, but also to extend that Uh, abroad, for example, through the Belt and Road Initiative, which we can we can talk some more about. But in any case, there's no, there's no doubt that China's changed. And I think the world has changed. And I describe it now as this geoeconomic world order where we're all so heavily intertwined. But security has become to, you know, take a, a much more prominent place in the discourse of all countries, including in Australia. And so my shift there has been from being an economist, it's very hard for any economist not to stand up and say free trade is a great idea. You know, that engagement narrative is the bread and butter of the economics discipline. We start by learning about comparative advantage and the gains from trade. So to walk away from that or to shift a little bit away for that and to say that world doesn't exist anymore, we do need to think more carefully for example, about Chinese investments in sensitive sectors that, you know, infrastructure sectors that are used to gather intelligence, for example, or that could be used for that end, given the shift in the US-China relationship and given our alliance with the US, it just doesn't make sense anymore to talk about engagement all the way. And so that's how I've shifted, I guess, a little bit in that direction.
0: Yeah, and I think that... On the advanced technology side, right, is something I've heard uh, folks sort of like, you know, in the Pakistani context, there's a big Pakistani American diaspora here in the United States in Silicon Valley that has been investing in the technology sector in Pakistan, both on sort of the, you know, basic technologies, payments, logistics, startup, etc. But some initial work in AI and then sort of machine learning and more sophisticated technologies. And I was talking to one of them privately a few a few weeks ago. And I was like, well, how do you see the US-China competition? He's like, I'm very worried about it. And I'm like, why? And he's like, well, because I I want to invest more in, in Pakistan. But the Chinese basically are building out the 5G and, and fiber optic networks over there. Mm-hmm. And it's Huawei all the way. Over there, and that makes it very, very challenging for me as a as a business owner, as a technologist in Silicon Valley to then justify or be able to make those investments in a country like Pakistan because of exactly what what you just mentioned uh, as well as a key risk over there in sensitive areas. It cuts you off. you have to then pick and choose. Um, on the geoeconomic side, we now see of course the Japanese investing billions of dollars in in technologies. Australia is right in there with Quad and sort of ISAT. India is taking a lead in terms of attracting different manufacturers sophisticated mm-hmm. technologies. The U.S. has a chip sack. As an economist, how do you see the return of this sort of like, you know, the end of free trade as we, as we know it? Um, and this idea that the state is now going to give a lot of incentives to attract manufacturing ecosystems and not only attract, But then make it a point to say you will not provide the same things to the Chinese, essentially, Mm -hmm. if you want these benefits. How do you see these these shifts uh, as an economist?
1: I mean, I guess I, for starters, see it as geoeconomics 101. It's a really good space to try and understand the dynamics at play there. But just, you know, on the Australia-China point and the deterioration of the relationship, while the standard narrative here is that that all somehow started with our covid inquiry the the government you know saying that they would launch an independent inquiry into the origins of covid if you talk to chinese officials one of the things that you can see them being visibly upset at i'd say more than anything else were the early decisions in 2013 first of all when the labor party blocked their investment into our national broadband network. But then the 2018, 17, 18 decision to not let them participate in our 5G network, it wasn't just the decision that upset them, it was the fact that Australian, I think it was the Australian government, took a delegation to Europe and started campaigning there. You know, and I I would argue I'm not a diplomat or a bureaucrat, so I can be critical of my own government. You know, I I think that was clearly a manoeuvre if not prompted at least by the US, at least the US would have absolutely supported it. And that Huawei is a central point of this geoeconomic sort of strategy unfolding. But maybe I'll come to the US um, p- part in this, was there. And of course, you know, there are very again competing narratives. If I'll try not to overuse that term, but about kind of who's to blame and and, and what the appropriate responses are. But Uh, You know, we mentioned briefly that Janet Yellen's, you know, the US Treasury Secretary gave a speech just a couple of weeks ago, and I I did talk about it in my US-China lecture that I give to my master's students and called it a couple of slides, you know, GeoEconomics 101. And it's all about, it's not all about the tech sector, but it gets to your question here. I mean, basically, she kicks off this speech and, you know, claiming that the United States strategy towards China is motivated by China's poor actions, by its pivot away from market-based reforms and towards a state-driven approach. And she kind of explains, you know, how China has this very complex uh, and sophisticated, really, um, I don't know if she uses that word, but it is a sophisticated industrial and tech policy uh, that it's been in place there for 20 years, but has amped up with this strategic competition. Uh, And, you know, Yellen's starting point is that they're breaking the rules and so we need to find a way to contend that. But I think the thing that really struck me the most in, in Yellen's speech was the elevation of national security and human rights. We can maybe come back to that. But on the national security side, you know, we need to be the most advanced military power basically and so we need all of the technology not only for the military sector, but as a, as a part of our economic development, that's number one, and we'll pay the economic costs to make sure that that happens, you know. And so, as a result, of course, the United States has introduced export controls and entity lists. Not only Huawei, you know, they're now talking about blocking American companies investing. In China, I don't even know that might have already happened. Um, you know, they're reviewing all sorts of investments in the United States for national security risks, and we might as well just read China uh, into all of that. And she insists that it's not designed to advance Americans' competitive competitive advantage. Uh, she also doesn't use the word industrial policy; she calls it modern sides. Modern supply side economics. Well, uh, if but I may that,
0: interrupt, if I may yeah. interrupt you, that 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 sort of reminded me of my grad school lecture with Professor Schultz in the role of force, and he used to talk about how bureaucrats and politicians and their comms advisors come up with these terms. And he referred to one in the in World War II, calling the massive airstrikes in Europe the decision was to call them dehousing campaigns. And it was like, well, they're not de-housing campaigns. You're basically dropping a ton of bombs on cities to break the back of the the Germans, essentially. That was the strategy, right? But it doesn't sound really good when you describe it as that. So de-housing campaign sounds okay. So I'm guessing it's the same thing. We don't want to call it industrial policy because it resonates. It doesn't sound capitalistic. So let's come up with a different way to describe industrial policy.
1: Exactly. And I, you know, I find it hard not to laugh and and I, at what I'm going to call it's just straight out hypocrisy to me, like you come up with a new term, but then go ahead. This is in a paragraph after she's criticized China for its industrial and tech policies, you know, and links into civil military fusion. There are some strategies that Xi Jinping's implemented that have been problematic, right? I mean, why have a national security law that ties all Chinese companies more tightly to a state that is having these tensions with the the superpower, but still, to call it something else when and then outline the CHIPS Act, the Science Act, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act, which is basically about green growth, but still trying to tie America's allies and friends to it you know she talks about friend shoring about well, not quite decoupling but I think de-risking and essentially outlines not a very sophisticated um, industrial policy but exactly what is an industrial policy and so that raises the question right and this is getting to the big one who's going to win this well, which countries? best place to advance their own industrial and tech policies when one is on the one hand claiming to be upholding the rules-based order based on 20th century neoliberalism and the other one pretty strongly owns socialism with Chinese characteristics. I mean, that's a, a question and I can unpack it more if you want me to, but yeah, I mean, I I could take a stab at who I think might do better in that competition. <laughs> well, before we get to that, there's another thing I wanted to get, get your take on on
0: as well is you mentioned this also earlier, uh, is the Belt and Road Initiative. And, and if you talk to uh, folks generally who read sort of Western publications, Bloomberg, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, or talk to people in DC think tanks, of which I am associated with one as well. Um, the mainstream conversation is uh, when you talk about countries like Sri Lanka, Pakistan, et cetera, is, hey, the Chinese use debt trap diplomacy here. They <laughs> use it in Africa. They've used it in Latin America, wherever there is Chinese debt, it's debt trap diplomacy. <laughs> um, I have a different point of view on that, which I've sort of <laughs> argued in, in private and in public as well. But I would love your thoughts as an economist, as a China expert. As somebody who studied neoliberalism and globalization in terms of how debt works and how countries borrow and spend money for investment, did China employ debt trap diplomacy from your point mm-hmm. of view?
1: So I have some strong views on some things, Was there, and, and this is one that I have a very strong view on. And I think the term makes absolutely no sense and that there is no academic evidence that I have seen. And I read widely about it. So I haven't actually done my own research, but it's, it's a term that from the the outset, when you hear it, it just doesn't make any sense, according to any simple intuition. I mean, why would any country channel through its state owned enterprises or, or, or its nationalized banks or any other mechanism? Why would it channel funds into a country Uh, and lots and lots of funds in order to then watch an investment fail, be owed that money, and then create some additional malign leverage over them. There are just so many better ways, I think, that you could create influence if you wanted to, and that's not one of them. Actually, my students um, in my master's course that I teach on the Chinese economy did a debate on the Belt and Road Initiative uh, just yesterday, uh, and it was a fantastic debate it was torn on the win. It was about the winners and losers. Uh, But I was really glad to see my students basically make a different argument, which is the one that I think makes sense is, you know, it's not necessarily about the fact that it's Chinese money flowing in, it is what the recipient countries do with it. And so whether you take, you know, the poster child of debt trap diplomacy, the Hambantota port case in Sri Lanka, as an example, uh, research has shown uh, that basically, that was much more connected to or related to, you know, a corrupt government, a government in Sri Lanka, poor governance structures, and basically a domestic issue that failed to utilize that Chinese investment. I I do want to qualify that and say it's not to say that all Chinese investments through the BRI and otherwise are working well. You know, there are other issues with them. We know there are problems, for example, with um, some companies, some Chinese companies and some other foreign companies, you know, abusing environmental standards or labour laws uh, or taking advantage of weak governance in the recipient countries. Uh, There are also problems with how they kind of assess their risks and they've made some errors along the way but I again to return to the key point do not think that debt trap diplomacy has anything to do with those problems and by distracting away from what actually are the problems we run the risk of then having those countries possibly fail to come up with solutions that solve the problem you've got to identify you've got to diagnose the right problem first or how are you going to solve the solve it and I think one
0: of the things related to that, right, and would love your thoughts on my own thinking is when you say it was debt trap diplomacy, it sounds as if, you know, I was there, have a ton of money, I want to lend it to Jane. And I'm putting a gun to your head and saying, Jane, take this $100 billion from mm-hmm. me. Um, and And then you obviously, I know you're not going to be able to invest it properly. And so you take it. And in a weird way, I'm taking away agency from you at that Mm. point in time, right? Like in the sense that if, you know, and this I hear from, for example, from Pakistanis uh, as well, when you talk about China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, their rebuttal to this argument that, you know, we owe a lot of debt to China, their view is, yes, we do. But when we needed power plants and infrastructure in our country, when 18 hours a day, there was no electricity, Nobody was offering that to us except the Chinese. Mm -hmm. And yes, we should have done a better job at managing our power sector and reforming it and directing it towards export-oriented industries. And we failed to do all of that. But it wasn't as if the Chinese were forcibly giving us that money. So what would you say about this agency problem as well that's taken away in this debate?
1: I guess... First of all, I just say it, it It seems insulting, like the whole notion of debt trap diplomacy does take the agency away from the recipient country in a way that I think is insulting. It suggests that they didn't have the capacity to make a good decision, like you said, that you've got the gun to my head and I take, I take the money, but I then deliberately mess it up so that you can control me. I mean, it, it, that's insulting to think that I would do that or to think that any country would do that. But I guess it's not to say that they can't find themselves in debt traps, right? So that part of the terminology makes some sense. I mean, we know a lot of African countries. We know countries all over the world are running into serious debt problems. And in Yellen's speech, she calls on China to play a bigger role in, in debt relief. I think they've actually done a bit. I'm I'm not going to put any numbers out there. And, you know, I wonder how much debt relief in relative terms the Western powers have provided over years to their own failing investments that have created debt traps uh, in the recipient countries. But we didn't call that debt trap diplomacy. We just looked at the problems in those countries. So give the agency back uh, and, you know, say from a middle power, from an Australian uh, development Point of view. Why not invest most prominently in helping other countries develop the sort of governance structures, you know, the the whole institutional and legal framework, for example, that here has ensured, in fact, that you know, report after report has showed when state-owned enterprises from China invested in Australia, there's never been a problem with any of them. They've never. I mean, this is not an exaggeration. They've never been shown to break any of the rules because the rules work well. Uh, so we haven't been debt-trapped by the Chinese, <laughs> uh, but it's not because of that diplomacy question.
0: Yeah, I think that that's the thing, right, is that investments in institutions, governance, anti-corruption, transparency, even something like a free media, right, plays a key role. One of the big, my own personal issues with sort of what happened with the China-Pakistan economic order, for example, is that when I began my own career writing about the Pakistan economy, uh, and, and critically assess these investments coming in, or these loans coming in, my question was, how are you going to pay back? And and there's a, an issue over transparency. And the government in Islamabad would basically say, you're a foreign agent, uh, you're anti-Pakistan-China friendship. And it's like, no, I'm not. And a lot of journalists uh, who I know were called out like that. And that free, that lack of transparency then hurts mm. a country like Pakistan, right? For exactly the reasons that you mentioned. And so... That's a role for countries like Australia, where they, they they can play a role. Shifting this conversation up a bit, you know, you talked about uh, who wins or who could win, and you have a point of view on that. Share a bit about your own critical assessment of where this is going and what Australia, or maybe if you want to talk about the United States in this in this part of the conversation as well, are getting right, and what, more importantly... Uh, are they getting wrong in sort of understanding a rising China, competing with a rising China? And then especially, I think this is something close to my own heart, is that, you know, entering a new era of strategic competition in an age where there are things like climate change that we as human beings, as human civilization, should be collaborating on. And it doesn't make sense for the two largest economies of the world to like enter into this, to sit this trap, uh, for lack of a better term.
1: Mm. Well, I guess there's a lot to unpack in there. Look, I'm not necessarily going to get bet money. I don't have much money to bet. So I'm not going to, you know, bet on who's going to win this strategic competition. Um, You know, I'm at least grateful that a a geo-economic competition and a tech competition is is preferable to a military competition. And, you know, in that case, I think it's pretty clear still that the US would win. And, for whichever side we want to prevent that, at, it you know it, it, in any way that we possibly can. I'm, I'm absolutely a pacifist there, and so geoeconomic competition isn't isn't such a bad thing compared with that. But I think where you know to return to that security, the hawks' narrative, I do think they tend to engage in wishful thinking about the Chinese economy. There's a great term, cynophrenia. I don't know if you've heard of it. I'm not sure if Tom Orlick. Who wrote? I have China. not.
0: So maybe you might want yeah. to define it for me and the audience.
1: Yeah, it's the it's the concurrent belief that the Chinese economy is headed for collapse, but also that China is going to take over the world, which in itself is inconsistent, right? Because if you if you have an economic collapse, you're not going to be able to take over the world, uh, and so it's not really humorous because I think, you know, and and I use that term. Wishful thinking, quite a bit. Uh, you know, it all works out fine if you take that strong stance against China, if you align with the United States, uh, if the allies all bond together, and if if America's industrial policy, modern modern supply side economics works, then it's possible that we back the winning horse there and that all will be well. Uh, but I think that absolutely does underestimate the future strength of of the Chinese economy. uh, And within that, there are a lot of debates. I mean, at the extreme on the economist side of that are the collapsists. Uh, Gordon Chang in 2001 writes a book called The Coming Collapse of China, where it's often wrapped up, I think, in a neoliberal view of the world, in a very pro-democratic kind of understanding that no other country could possibly do as well as the United States, as the Western, you know, democratic free market economies, because that is the best way to create and deliver output and to deliver prosperity to the people. Well, I reckon that the Americans are showing pretty clearly that they don't deep down believe that anymore. Like if you listen to Jake Sullivan, you know, the national security advisor's response to Yellen's speech. He calls it industrial strategy. He says the end, you know, the free trade era is behind us, a bit like I'm saying it's behind us. So what comes next? Well, I reckon it's time. I'm not gonna say to give credit to everything, of course, that the Chinese Communist Party does or that their government apparatus does. But what are the sorts of tools that they use effectively? You know, look at their five-year plans, their 10-year plans, they have industrial and tech plans laid out, you know, to at least 2025, made in China 2025, but they've got plans till 2030, till 2049. You know, we're just dying off the next election and wondering whether Trump will possibly get re-elected or not. Uh, Our politicians too in a democracy, you know, very short-sighted. We don't have a five-year plan, let alone a 50-year one. So I think, you know, we need to understand more about the strengths of state-led development of the capacity for the state to guide high-tech sectors and other parts of the economy that will spur growth. I know the comeback is there'll be plenty of losers. You know, state-owned enterprises aren't the most efficient way to organise production. That's true. Uh, Imagine if the Chinese privatised them all and got that extra boost to growth, it would make them perhaps even more economically powerful uh, but ultimately, yeah, huge decisions or huge sort of debates and unresolved questions about the role of the state in promoting development. Uh, and in this new geoeconomic world order, that role for the state matters even more. And I think we're underestimating China's capacity there. I think your point on the
0: role of the state is is super, super important, right? It's again, I, I, if I sort of look at my own personal view of the world. 2007, I come to the United States, go to college here. And of course, you are taught free market economics. My undergrad major was econ and finance. And so you learn about it, but it just happened, uh, you know, based on my age that I was going in college and studying this stuff during the great financial crisis, the global financial crisis. So when you're seeing Lehman Brothers collapse and all of that, you kind of don't look at the dogma that, you know, is in the economics 101 books the same way. So you hunt as as that 18 year old for other information. And, you know, that state consistent with me and somebody like Mariana Mazzucato argues for the role Mm -hmm. of the state as well. Right. You look at things like the Internet or the railways or the modern shipping lines and all of that stuff. The state did it. And and somehow in the United States and the West, somehow those contributions or the role of the state has been forgotten. But now, as you said, with Jake Sullivan's speech, clearly there's a rethinking of that, particularly on the democratic side here in the United States. And that's interesting. Mm. Um, Related to that, as you said, era of free trade and globalization is over. Um, If you were to then look at sitting in Australia, sort of what, should Global South countries be doing here, right? It, and again, uh, if you disagree, I would love for your point of view. My view is that Global South countries have an immensely amazing opportunity, a once in a generation opportunity, perhaps even bigger than during the Cold War, to look at both these competing powers in a geoeconomic world and get their strategies right, to attract the mm. best from both of them, right? And And play that game because they need to develop They need to leapfrog. Many of these countries, including Pakistan, are at the sort of uh, are, are already facing the brunt of climate change. So they need to solve these problems very quickly. What would you advise countries like Pakistan or global south countries that are still poor in terms of how should they be thinking about and navigating or strategizing for this strategic competition between the United States and China?
1: Look it's a great question. I mean first of all when we're talking about agency just before you know I've, I want to be pretty cautious about going in and advising any other country what they should do. I think it is a great opportunity and that you know it's you should be drawing on the people from within uh, and also probably time that we started learning from the rest of you about how to better deal uh, with, you know, a rising power that isn't our best friend. I mean, that's new territory for Australia, whereas, of course, for Pakistan, uh, for Bhutan, you know, I had a, I met with the um, Bhutanese ambassador to Australia just recently, and he was, you know, talking about how Bhutan tries to balance the interests between India and China. I mean, Pakistan is much more experienced in this realm than we are at, at dealing with, you know, powers that aren't necessarily your best friends. Uh, But I guess if I was going to advise, I'd I'd start by outing myself as a whitest. And by that, I mean Hugh White. And I have got his um, book here as as one of my recommendations. It's 10 years old now. But this is the strategy, basically, that I wish Australia had adopted, that it hasn't, and that he has been prosecuting for about 10 years. And essentially it's a pretty simple story that says China will rise up and be the most important economy in the region and ultimately the largest economy in the world. The US economy in comparison is in decline and they will be smaller and are less invested in our region. And so, first of all, the United States needs to learn to share the global power space with with China, not looking promising. They've pretty much made a very clear stand that they will stay on top, you know, as Biden put it, China won't rise up above us, not on my watch or something like that. Um, But that Australia's role, as Hugh prosecuted it, should have then been to ensure that the two superpowers cooperated as much as they could on issues like the environment, uh, but also that we encourage them to resolve their differences to prevent that great strategic rivalry. Now we have he he called that book The China Choice but it was about n- us not making a choice so uh you know 10 years later you can read his updates on that in quarterly essays published an Australian publication uh, another one just last year saying it's it's truer than ever 10 years later China has risen more rapidly look at the problems in the US i mean just yesterday Biden cancelled his trip to Australia because of the you know, pending debt crisis there. Uh, Yeah,
0: there was so much talk in DC about the trip to the Pacific Islands and then all of a sudden, just because they can't agree to a debt deal on the Hill, the president had to rush back to negotiate.
1: Well, and again, as as Hugh put it a couple of years ago, and I just love some of his turns of phrase, but he said, we look like rats on a sinking ship. So back to your question that was there, you know, what should other countries do? <laughs> Simply put, coming to the end of a podcast, how about not looking like rats on a sinking ship, but also, yeah, turning the tensions, I guess, into as much of an opportunity as you can. and. You know, when I look at how it's playing out in the in the Pacific, uh, Biden is stopping off. Oh, now I've forgotten which which Pacific island he's going to, but you know, probably first U.S. president to visit a Pacific island in a very long time. I'm pretty sure Trump didn't go. There are these geo economic kind of battles playing out where Australia quite openly talks about its drive for influence, but what that means is more more money coming in. Now they're not all debt traps. They are all about, well, they're all potential debt traps, but turning that into the opportunity of how can we get our own houses in order to make sure that we utilise those strategic and competitive funds to our best advantage. I think whilst meanwhile continuing to play that role in talking down the tensions uh, and in not picking sides, in, in basically aligning with Hughes and my view of the world. You know, and for me, as I've said, I've run my line. He's a strategic thinker, talks about it in a military sense, in a kind of power sense, coming very much from that kind of defence side, whereas I, as the economist, align with him because I think his starting observation about China's rise and US relative decline uh, will prove to be true. We both might be wrong about that, but that's how I'd call it today.
0: Yeah. And I think in in, in that instance, you know, I, one of the next podcasts I'm going to do is talk to scholars from the Middle East or who look at the Middle East, because I feel particularly the Gulf, Saudi Arabia and the UAE and Qatar have sort of done exactly or are doing exactly what you're suggesting, right? Like pick the best of both sides, play them off of each other. One can provide mm. you certain things, the other can't, but you don't need to make a choice at this point. And mm. you have enough agency And if you get your strategy right, then there's a lot of upside here for smaller powers or emerging or developing economies. A couple of last Mm -hmm. questions towards the end, Jane, which this has been fascinating and extremely insightful. If I were to ask you sort of over the next, let's say, 12 to 18 months, some risks or things you're going to be keeping an eye out for, what would those Mm -hmm. be? What are you looking out for in terms of this competition?
1: look i guess given that i've taken a pretty strong line here and said you know my deep concern with the australian strategy is that they're backing the wrong horse basically and it's not then that we should back the other horse but that we should not be backing anyone because we the future is very uncertain but and 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 then the uncertainty for me you know to stay in my comfort zone is about what are the issues that could derail china's economic growth in the next decade or in the next two decades and a big one a, a big one in the mi- the mix is the way that the us is responding to them and the the degree of success that the united states has in bringing on board its allies you know we seem to be getting reports here daily of the japanese agreeing to you know put stops on technology from china or the europeans are making moves and there's tension there but you know, there's a competition playing out there to, to side more strongly with the US. If it all goes as the US wants it to go, that threat to China's growth is significant. Um, You know, it, it then comes back down to whether I'm, I guess, right about their own capacity to advance a more self-reliant um, technology and industrial policy that advances from within. And I think they've got the capacity to do that with that 1.4 billion with an you know, a determined government with lots of money behind them, not a government riddled with debt. I think they've got the capacity, but absolutely, I'd be looking out for, you know, signs of money being misspent, and of them failing to sort of pursue that self-reliant technology push. Uh, and then, of course, on top of that is, yeah, watching how it all unfolds in the US. I mean, more within the the Chinese economy, there are themes, you know, that don't get so much airtime these days. I mean, one is the p- the pending demographic collapse, as the West likes to report it. I don't think that's a serious constraint, uh, not, not in the next uh, decade, at least, for reasons that I've uh, spent decades researching and could explain more about. But that's one of those wishful thinking narratives. I think it's not a problem. I think the degree of inequality in China really is a significant and growing problem. Uh, gender inequality alone means that women are dropping out of the workforce at a time when population growth is now falling. Of course, India is overtaken for the first time. Uh, I'm not all about big country. I think you know a small population or a declining population brings material benefits, uh, but you know there are problems that could come from keeping the women out of the workforce and from not doing a better job on the rural urban divide as well. Uh, So there's some of the internal things that I look at, I guess, in, in wondering what the constraints to Chinese growth will be. Overall, I still walk away thinking they're not as substantial as the constraints to growth that the other superpower is facing. And that makes me pretty unpopular. It's not what the West wants to hear. (laughs) <laughs> well,
0: uh, you know, we we on this podcast at least love to have unpopular opinions, because I think that's important for people to have a well-rounded view and then make their own judgment on where they lie on, on sort of certain issues. And this in particular, I think, Jane, is an important conversation personally for me, because it's hard to sometimes, you know, seek out a different point of view beyond the mainstream. Right. One of the my to do to-dos on, on the list in addition to the books, and I'll ask you for your reading recommendation in just a moment, is to read this book. But apparently in this week's Economist, um, there's a long read on Henry Kissinger's view of China, and I read some excerpts of it, and it leads me to believe, and, and I'm not going to lead it to a conclusion, that he's perhaps closer to you um, than many others <laughs> on the on United States, on, on China. I think one of the quotes I read was that it, it would be, and I'm paraphrasing, That would be folly for the U.S. or the West to look at China in the way that, you know, we look at the rise of Hitler or Nazi Germany, because it's not the same framework. The framework is different. You need to think a bit differently about them. So that's my weekend read. uh, And I think the audience uh, and you, uh, you know, should read that one as well. I'm excited. You know, when Mm. Kissinger writes, you kind of want to get a sense of what he's thinking about and saying, Um, before I let you go, um, you already recommended one book. Uh, I see a collection of books behind you as well. So what are some (laughs) books that you would recommend to the audience uh, if they're interested in learning more about China and this, this strategic competition and what it means
1: for the world? Yeah, look, I have got quite a few books that I wanted to suggest and I'm sorry for that phone ringing. I could have sworn I had it on silence. I hope it's not too distracting. Um, But look, yeah, so first of all, I'll just hold up The China Choice. And again, um, you know, it's an old book. There are shorter versions in this quarterly essays. You do have to pay for them so you might not get to them. But Hugh White, The China Choice, uh, just fantastic. Uh, I'd also like to give a call out to Alan Gingell, uh, one of our wonderful uh, policy, foreign policy, probably the greatest foreign policy thinker in in Australia's history. Uh, he died a couple of weeks ago, a very sudden uh, illness, uh, and, a, and a very unexpected and 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 sad um, early death. So his fear of abandonment uh, really gives a great historical sense of. The fear that Australians have always had, you know, before it was the Chinese that we were worried about, we were worried about the Japanese, we were actually worried about the Americans investing in us early on, like we've always had a bit of a fear of the foreigner, and a fear of them being abandoned by our true allies and friends. You know, the Americans and, and the British. Uh, so that's a really nice insight in, and, and a deep insight into the Australian mindset, as is another one, nice cover. Um, Alan Bean, he was a former advisor to Penny Wong, now the foreign minister, and recently wrote this book, No Enemies, No Friends. Uh, and he, you know, again, like Hugh, but, you know, in a slightly different way, runs this line of Australia ideally playing a more sensible line where we don't create the us versus them narrative that's so prominent today. Uh, and I know you said only two, but I've just got one more. This is a colleague of mine. Some of you might've come across the book. It's called six faces of globalization, who wins, who loses by Anthea Roberts here at the ANU and Nicholas Lam. uh It's a Harvard university press book. I reckon it's one of the best books I read Uh, In the last five years, it was a Financial Times book of the year, I think published just last year. And she or they unpack these six different narratives of globalization. The engagement is one of them. The geoeconomic narrative is another. Uh, They look at uh, the right wing populist narrative and the left wing populist narrative. They're all kind of Western narratives and they have a small section at the back on alternative, alternative narratives like the rise of Asia narrative which is actually the one that I align with the most right so i guess as a finishing point there for me was there you know there isn't a single australian narrative there isn't a single western narrative we're all debating these things you know i'm i'm trying to encourage and to be flexible in where i position myself and to recognise that you draw on all these different complex narratives to try and understand the world what i wish was that you know, in our media debate, and among our politicians, we could be a bit more honest about that. Um, but that book also just a fantastic read, highly recommend it.
0: Well, thank you for those and, and I'm all about a bit more honesty. And and you know, one of the things I'll end on, I know you and I agree that the era of globalization and free trade is over, but South Asia is the least integrated region in terms of trade in the world. And I think again, it's a shame that over you know a billion and a half people don't have mm. that kind of trading arrangement that,
1: mm-hmm. you know,
0: a couple of hundred years ago made the subcontinent the wealthiest empire in the world before the British colonized it. And again, maybe to and your point on Asian narratives reminded me of that, right? That perhaps there's something here about a subcontinental narrative, about an East Asian narrative, about a broader Asian narrative narrative or an African narrative or a Latin American narrative uh, because in many ways the history of colonization and and occupation etc means that we still continue to view the world from a western lens Mm. and sometimes it's important to look at an eastern perspective and say well wait a minute that region used to do things a bit differently um, not so long ago in the grand scheme of things and perhaps we need to revisit some of those Mm. perspectives as well and understand that you know um, there is a different way to think and talk about it. Unfortunately, sometimes in the mainstream, those opportunities are not there to talk about that. uh so, I'm glad that you know you joined us for this podcast and and I had a frank uh, assessment and critical assessment of this competition and and would love to stay in touch and maybe have you on again as things shape up in this competition because it's not going away which means that there's going to be lots more to talk about. So, Mm -hmm. uh, Jane, thank you so much and have a wonderful rest of your day.
1: Oh, you're very welcome. Really nice to talk to you. And don't forget, the future really is Asian. That's what I reckon.
0: I fully Mm -hmm. agree. Thank you.
1: (laughs) Okay. See you then.